True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to a bonus episode of True Crime South Africa. The storyteller tells her story. In this bonus episode, the incredible Vanessa Lynch of DNA for Africa turns the microphone on me. I interviewed Vanessa in November 2021, and if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you do that. Vanessa is one of the most incredible people I've had the honor of meeting through this journey, and the work she does through the DNA for Africa organization is legitimately groundbreaking and so vital to the advancement of DNA as a tool for crime fighting and body identification in South Africa. Since I interviewed Vanessa, I've had the pleasure of engaging with her and the organization on social media, and recently she came up with this pretty cool idea of turning the mic on me to chat about my journey. This episode is sponsored by DNA for Africa, and I'm so grateful for their support of the podcast. You can check out some of the other interviews and conversations Vanessa's had with some truly fascinating people by going to their website, dnaforafrica.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the website and click on podcast. There are also video versions of some of her interviews and a ton of really fascinating resources. Check it out and follow DNA for Africa on all their socials too. Right, so enough of me. Well, really, the rest is me too, which is weird, but really fun. Let's get into Vanessa Lynch's interview of me. Hello, I'm Vanessa Lynch, Director of DNA for Africa. And today we are turning the mic on Nicole Engelbrecht, creator and host of the popular True Crime South Africa and I Live Through This podcasts. Nicole's podcast, True Crime South Africa, has consistently ranked as one of the most popular true crime podcast series in South Africa, as well as globally. And today, I am so excited to turn the mic on you, Nicole. How do you feel about this being on the other side of the mic? I think it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I love your work. And I'm so grateful to to have been invited. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you guys got into podcasting. Well, behind the mic, I'm I'm watching the master here. So I I hope I do as well as you. Um, I think one thing that we all love about you listening is your ability, no matter what you're presenting, to remain objective and calm. And I mean, I would be definitely showing my emotion and going, oh, my goodness, I would not be able to to contain myself. So let's let's dive right in. I mean, how where did the storytelling ability come from? How do you maintain this this narrative that is so compelling and and captivating? Sure. I don't you know, I've always been a, a hobby writer. So I think stories have always been in my blood. You know, I don't know much about my grandparents, but my I know my great grand uh, I think my great grandfather was a poet, so I think that it's in the DNA somewhere. And um, you know, I've always enjoyed writing, and uh, never ever thought that it could be something that I would use in a career one day. But yeah, that that love for storytelling has always been me, and. I just think it's, you know, it's completely incredible to be incredible to me that I get to now combine that with something that I'm so passionate about. And 
you know, so absolutely so honored to be able to tell these stories, these specific stories, you know, that are so important to victims of violent crime in South Africa. Exactly. And, and I mean, you, you talk about storytelling and, and certainly I, I can't imagine that, that your, your parents told you stories of crime. So, so how did you land up becoming a podcast of horrific crime stories? I mean, what, mm. what was the bug that bit you and said, ooh, I'm going to go in this direction? Yes, I think just like storytelling, you know, sort of the mystery side of crime has always been an interest for me. You know, if I think back, even when I was a child, you know, pre-12, you know, reading lists still included things like, um, you know, mystery books and that sort of thing. And then as I became a teenager, it's drifted more into the, the crime side of things. So that interest has always been there. And why it's there, I don't know. I think I've got a very curious mind. I like to know why things work the way they do. And maybe that sort of leans into the true crime side with, you know, why do people do what they do? As I've been through this journey, I've sort of reflected on what in my past has maybe influenced. And, you know, there, there was an incident when I was in grade eight. I have to purposely say grade eight and not standard six because that shows my age. <laughs> um, <I know. laughs> when a, um, a fellow student in my class, sadly, who her younger sister was kidnapped and uh, murdered uh, when I was you know, in, in Boxburg. I was at Boxburg High. And at the time, I, I recall it being, you know, something that obviously stood out in my mind as one of my first sort of post-home experiences of crime and especially crime against a child, you know, being so young mm -hmm. myself. I mean, the girl was yes. just a few years younger than me. But as I reflect back, I realize, even though at the time I didn't really pay that much attention to the actual criminal side of it, you know, wondering who this person was and, you know, what their um, their punishment was, were they caught, etc. That came as I got older. And uh, as I reflect back now, I really realize that that and a couple of other similar instances in my life have really been quite pivotal in my interest in true crime. So when I decided to get into this, you know, podcasting, you know, medium, for me, I think true crime was always going to be what I was going to do. There was really nothing else that interested me enough to, for me to be able to talk about it for an hour at a time and not be bored myself. <laughs> Wow. Yes. No, I mean, it's a, I find that there's always a catalyst in many ways. Uh, any, anyone dealing in the space, um, there's always a catalyst that, that really impacted one's life that, you know, enables people to, you know, work in the space. And, and certainly when I first started my lobbying and, and DNA, the DNA project originally, I, I really dove in, but I, I found after time that it, it wore me down and I needed to figure out how to disassociate myself from the horror of the crime. How do you do that? Because I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've been doing this for many years. You're very successful. You, you know, you do it on a regular basis and you obviously look for some of the most heinous and, and horrific crimes. I mean, how do you disassociate yourself from this besides being curious? Yeah. When people started asking me this question, you know, in interviews, 
in the beginning, I wasn't sure how to answer. And again, it was something I had to reflect on. And I've come up with a few different answers. I think my innate sort of emotional resilience, you know, that's something that I've probably always had, but also built up over the years that has been a big part of it. I am, you know, generally a very emotionally resilient person. But then also, as I started speaking to people like yourself and and others who work with these crimes hands-on on a daily basis, people started talking to me about this um, boxing off that they do. And I think that I've realized that I do that too without even knowing it. You know, mm-hmm. so it's this, you know that what you're doing is going to achieve something important, you know, and if you allow your emotions in that moment to overtake you, you won't be able to do the job as well as you should. And, you know, you box off those emotions and you put them in another box and you put them on side and you, I guess you should deal with them later. Sometimes you don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah. um, you know, I think really that's what I do. You know, that, that really resonates with me in terms of how I deal with this separating the point of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it from the really horrific stuff that I'm reading and researching about. And and sometimes it's not always possible. And there are sometimes cases that I'll get, you know, an hour or two into research and just think, okay, no, I'm not in a place where I can focus on this case at the moment and I'll put it one side and come back to it, you know, when I'm feeling a bit stronger. Um, But yeah, Mm -hmm. I I think it's those two things you know, that resilience and that sort of boxing, boxing away. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I fully understand that. And I think it also, it takes practice weirdly um, because there's, I think for me, um, and, and perhaps it, it's similar to you, is that what all I went through dips and dives. Sometimes I remember um, I used to work with Rob Matthews of the Lee Matthews Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you all remember the case. And I remember phoning him one day and just going, you know, I just can't do this anymore. This is, it's just too much. And, you know, you go through dips and dives and then you just suddenly something happens or you meet somebody that's so inspiring and mm-hmm. that makes you think, no, no, you must keep keep doing this so so I mean who have you met or, or, or I know you've got an amazing podcast which we'll talk about later I lived through this because I think you do have to start looking at the survivors not only the you know the, the perpetrators of crime in order to keep keep going forward but um you know tell us a couple of people before we get into the worst crime ever let's start on a, on a high note that have inspired you to you know to retain hope and faith in in human nature because sure. you've obviously seen the very worst side of it. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, at the very the very basic level, you know, when I get to points that I feel like, you know, this is just too much, often my listeners reaching out to me, and I don't think they realize how important those sort of positive comments and messages that they, and emails and things like that, that they send through, you know, to them, it's probably, you know, them just reaching out. But the, those those comments are very important to me. When people reach out and they say, um, you know, your episode on whatever it was helped me with X in my life. Or even just, you know, things like your, strangely enough, the podcast is calming for some people, even though it's, you know, mm. people living with anxiety, it, it gets their mind off things. 
you know, so that as a very base is, is beneficial to me. But certainly for me, it's been the victims, family members and, and okay. survivors that I've managed to mm. meet that above all, when I chat to them, whether it's on email or in person or on the phone, you know, I think to myself, I'm just telling the story. You actually had to live through it. You know, and you are still living through it. Every single, you'll live mm. through it until mm. you take your last breath, you know. And seeing them carrying on and, you know, continuing to push for justice or continuing to, you know, try and live a life that doesn't daily, you know, t- let that perpetrator take away from them every single day, that that is mm. truly inspiring. Um Yes. And then, you know, last but not least, people such as yourself and others who work in the the arena hands-on who are, you know, I'm sitting behind a microphone and it's very seldom that I actually do any sort of hands-on work and certainly nothing that puts my life at risk. And, you know, when I chat to police officers and, mm. you know, these yes. types of people who despite all of the the lack of resources and the difficulties and the you know comments from the public and all of that that they're dealing with they continue to go to work on a daily basis and literally put their lives at risk for us you know so yes yeah certainly those three aspects yeah no I, I mean I, I think people will certainly resonate with that um and your and your voice I have to say is very calming <laughs> um you. it, it it it's you really have honed that skill. It's lovely. Um, I, when I listen to your podcast, and I must I must tell you, uh, people always say, "Do you watch CSI?" Do you? No. And but there's something because of the reality of your stories and the way in which you um, you know project your voice and tell them. It, it it's mesmerizing. So you, you really do have a, a great skill. Thanks. So you know, okay. So let's go diving right in because everybody lo- loves to hear about. I mean, what what is it's, it's difficult to say your best story because it's not about that, but you've done, I think, over 167 podcasts, I think. I'm mm. not quite sure what the number is. Yeah. And I'm sure that, yeah, I mean, South Africa is a playground for, for criminals and, and violent crime, so there's no shortage there. But, I mean, what in, in, in all of your storytelling and your podcast, what stands out as the, you know, just for, for whatever reason, whether it's because it was horrific, because it was a mastermind crime, what is the standout um, case that that um, you've told a story about. Hmm. Yeah, so I think a few of them for different reasons, but always the the unsolved ones. Um, you know, so okay. the percentage of unsolved cases to solved cases that I talk about is it's quite small because I only choose unsolved cases where I know I'm not going to do damage to the case by talking about it. So it's got mm. to be cold. I want to have family members involved. I want to have assurance that, uh, you know, it's, it's the right time to talk about it and it's going to be helpful. Um, yes. And one in particular, which I, I think I usually use as an example, has been the, the murder of a young man, a young boy here in Cape Town called Connor Isaacs. Mm. And he was murdered at his home. His dad had actually just moved to that house a week before because he thought it was a safer area for his son. And Connor was at home for his uh, school holidays and he was playing PlayStation and someone broke into his house and murdered him in his home. 
and his dad mm-hmm. came home and found him. And that was the first time I did Connor's case quite early on. Uh, it was the first time that I had met a victim's family face-to-face. I met his parents. And I think for all those reasons and probably the fact that his case is still unsolved and there, there's actually DNA in that case. And so, okay. yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons that at the time his case was not solved was because the DNA was bungled. Um, mm. I think that is the case that has really stood out for me, continues to weigh on my mind, um, you know, and I think will until the day that they actually arrest the guys that are responsible for it. Well, you never know, you know, the the fact that DNA was taken. I mean, there may still be some in the file. We've got a DNA database now. I always say that criminals are habitual. So maybe that's something that that you and I um, off this podcast can look at again. Um, I've heard of cases being solved with DNA now 40 years old. They can, the, the technology is such that they can, you know, from highly degraded, um, contaminated DNA, small amounts of DNA, they can obtain a full profile. And with a DNA database, you know, these guys keep, you know, we've got arrestees being sampled, convicted offenders, they will come back under the radar. So yes, maybe that will not always be unsolved. Um, Let's make this our mission, Nicole, and uh, it's intriguing me now. (laughs) But yeah. So your book, I mean, this must have been a case that that prompted you. I mean, you've written a book. Um, tell us about the the, the book. Um, how's it doing? You know, why did you decide to, you know, translate one of these podcasts into a book? Yeah, it, it still sounds really strange to me to hear, you know, someone say you've written a book um, or, yeah, even mm-hmm. that, that it's been published because it's, yeah, I mean, that that was a dream for me since I was six years old, was to have a mm. book published. And I never thought it would, um, you know, it would be a dream that would come true. But so last year, October, published uh, Samurai Sword Murder, the Morning Haram's story, which was published yes. by Melinda Ferguson Books. And that's an imprint. Uh, Melinda's imprint is uh, with NB Publishers. And that was... You know, this whole journey has been, I I don't really believe in coincidences anymore, but it's been a series of just the right things happening at the right time and the right people connecting, and this was Mm -hmm. no different. You know, so Melinda had actually heard the podcast that I did on uh, Monet's crime, and she at the time wanted to see if she could get a book written on it. And yeah, once she, she heard it, she thought I was a half decent storyteller and uh, <laughs> contacted Did me. Did you see that way? <laughs> uh, yeah, contacted me and uh, it flew from there. It was a really short turnaround period because we wanted to get it out in last year. So we literally just had, you know, a few months to, to write it. But I think it's a really valuable story and I'm grateful. If it was going to be any case, I'm grateful it was that case first because I, because I think it was able to explore a lot of the parts of true crime that I'm very passionate about. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about offenders, talk about them in such a way that we can actually learn something 
you know, not glorifying offenders, but actually learning from their mm. backgrounds and their crimes mm. and that sort of thing, especially with young offenders, you yes. know, and, and getting rid of that sensationalism, which is often, mm. like, you know, really does not serve the victims, the yeah. stuff around Satanism and, you know, all of this mm. nonsense mm. that just mm. ends up masking the truth. So yeah, that that's that's the book, and yeah, hugely grateful. Still feels very surreal, but doing very well. And I've had, I think, the the most important review from me was always going to be from Jacques Petrius's family, the victim's mm. family, yes. and his aunt Leonie attended one of my book launches. They were involved from the beginning, and they sent me a message saying that they were very happy with the book. And, you know, thanking me and yeah, really, I mean, I know it's supposed to be all, you know, it's, it's equally supposed to be about sales and, you know, how many books are you selling? But for me, that is, you know, I could get a hundred bad reviews and as long as I got that one, <laughs> you know, that's what it's all about. hundred percent. No, absolutely. Well, congratulations. I mean, it is, it's, I mean, anyone who's written anything um, of that nature, I'm sure it's, it's a, it, it really becomes a, a, a part of your DNA. It really does because you're so invested in it and you have to get so deep into it in order for it to be successful. So well done. That's that's really exciting. And at the end of the podcast, we'll definitely, you know, give people some idea of where to buy it and, and, and you know, where to access your podcasts. But, um, I mean, you, you, you raise something that, that, um, that we don't often talk about. You know, you tell stories about crime, you know, I lobby for DNA databases and development because I see that, you know, there's, there's so much future in that. But crime is very complex and um, two aspects of it. First of all, a justice system, you know, is it robust enough to really ensure that you've convicted the right person? And, you know, this also brings up another element, which is if you have rehabilitation, which is so poor in this country specifically, and there's just this vicious cycle. Um, you know, so, so two aspects of the question. First is, do you think our justice system is robust enough to ensure that we are in fact convicting the correct guy when you know when 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 people are convicted of a crime, and secondly, any a simple insight into what you've seen um, regarding rehabilitation, or if you feel there's anything further that can be done. I think that before I started this journey into you know all the cases that I've looked into, I would have thought without a doubt that every single person behind bars in South Africa and probably across the world is a guilty person. And I think that the reality is, no, they're not. Mm. I think the vast majority is. Yes. But, you know, in a South African context, I think if we see, you know, how deep corruption is proving to run through all aspects of our country at the moment and it's being unearthed at a sort of, staggering rate I think that we would be you know it would be ridiculous to assume that that would not be happening in the legal system as well mm -hmm. um, you know whether that's with judges whether that's with prosecutors um, I am very grateful that we do not have a jury system in South Africa because I think that would be very badly misused mm -hmm. I I would like to say that I would still think that, you know, probably at least 90% of the offenders being found guilty 
in South Africa are in fact guilty. I don't know that that that, that would be correct. Um, you know, it, it's it's so difficult to say when I start learning things about, especially in the Western Cape, you know, where we have such a huge gang issue. Yes. And, you know, I chat to criminologists who's, who've worked um, so deeply with the gangs and they tell me that, um, in almost, you know, in in a vast majority of gang-related cases, the person that gets end up that ends up with the crime pinned on them was not the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that type of thing really, really makes me worry. Yeah. Um, I see today um, the I've just seen the headline: the man accused of murdering murdering Megan Kramer has been acquitted mm-hmm. um, in the Western Cape, yeah. and that's concerning. I. You know, I haven't delved deep enough into that case, but I know that there was a lot of victim blaming going on there. There was a lot of weird stuff happening there. Mm. And I just hope, you know, if he didn't do it, that's, you know, that that's the injustice, you know, but someone did it. And it's concerning that an investigation would not have brought forward who that person could have been. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, the that half of your question. And then in terms of rehabilitation, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of connecting pe- with people like Zibeth Hansen, who yes. is a psychologist with DCS, and she's taught me a lot about the humanity of offenders. Mm. And um, you know, she is very realistic about the possibility of rehabilitation. She knows which of her offenders can be rehabilitated and which can't, um, or which have a better chance and which have a very poor chance. You know, I think certainly in all sex offences, I'm very hesitant to to even hope that there would be any form of rehabilitation there, depending on the circumstances. But so often we see sex offences being so psychologically ingrained that it's yeah. almost impossible to get that out of the offender. Yes. Um, you know, and I think that when we look at our parole system, that is a huge issue for me that needs to be looked at because although we've maybe made progress in going from a punitive to a rehabilitative system in our prison systems, we have not adjusted our parole system to actually understand what rehabilitation looks like. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, rehabilitation does not look like I'm sorry and I won't do it again and I've been a really good, well-behaved prisoner. That's not rehabilitation. No. <laughs> um, you know, that that means you're rehabilitated in a prison environment and you're not gonna reoffend in a prison environment. It doesn't mean you're not gonna reoffend in the outside world. So that is certainly concerning to me. Our our prison system and our parole system, there seems to be a you know, and our legal system, there seems to be a desperate disconnect there. And it's allowing these serial offenders to get out and do it again and again and mm-hmm. again. Well, you know, we see this. We see this in um, the database when they pick up um, offenders that they think have been connected to one case, and they suddenly link to up to a hundred, literally. And those are only the ones that they 
managed to to obtain DNA. So, you know, it, it, it's a very complex social problem, but there are cases, and I know where I've listened to um, psychologists speak that people are, it, it's very difficult with serial sexual offenders um, often to rehabilitate, but it doesn't mean that rehabilitation shouldn't happen. And I think it's something we should always, I mean, I remember being almost attacked by a young criminologist student and she she said she wanted to meet me for coffee and I was quite taken aback because she I thought she was going to talk about you know the amazing work of the DNA project and she sat there and she just said you're putting all these people in prison but what are you doing about rehabilitation and she went through you know the difficulties and at the end of that I actually said thank you for bringing it to my attention this is what I do and this is all I can do what are you doing about it and I think that we have to keep keep it on the table and talking about it and hoping that as you say there are many people who are dealing with it we can't do everything all of us but but we need to be able to talk about exoneration, talk about conviction, and talk about rehabilitation in the same context. Um, they're, they're not separate, and it's complex, but we have to ensure, you know, as you said. And, yeah, and exoneration, I mean, I think it would be great for you to do a, a series on exonerations because, my goodness, have I seen some exonerations through DNA. I used to sit on the DNA Innocence Project in South Africa on the board. And I've still got cases that are in my folder. And it's very, you know, our DNA Act actually allows cases to be open for exoneration purposes, which is which is highly unusual in legislation. Wow. Um, because most, I mean, in America, the process just to get the case opened once somebody's been convicted is is a huge, um, I mean, I mean you, you've got to literally go to court. Whereas in South Africa, if you can show that there may be a case for exoneration, they do, they have to, they're compelled by law. So maybe, Nicole, these are a few cases I can put onto your yeah. table. I think it would be fascinating. And again, DNA, because of its subjectivity, and I'm not punting DNA for that aspect, but most of the exonerations have come through DNA. Because, you know, eyewitness testimony, as we know, is just so unreliable. And other forms, you know, you know, they used to sort of, you know, the hair analysis. I mean, oh, my goodness, he's comparing hair shafts. I mean, I, I cannot believe it's, it's, it's literally people have been convicted on, on the basis of that. So a lot of these cases, they're, they're finding DNA and exonerating um, people throughout the world. Right. And I certainly think in South Africa, there is just no ways we don't have innocent people in prisons. And I'm going to say something. Some cases your way i think we should have, i'd love that yeah put podcasts yeah. on that, yeah, I'd love that. And, and maybe on re rehabilitation from a prisoner's perspective i think they're all interconnected yeah. so yeah absolutely yeah mm -hmm. and uh, i have lived through this I and mean, this is your new podcast and and from what i can tell you you focusing on the the survivor stories and and i must say i work with a lot of survivors too and it's just so humbling and it's just a an incredible space to see the, you know, the tenacity of human nature. What, what prompted you? And, and I mean, should, this is when you talk about using your platform to do good. Is this is this what compelled you? And can you tell us a bit, a bit about I have lived through this? I think through True Crime South Africa, I learned, I mean, I, I guess I've always known that storytelling was powerful, but I didn't realize how powerful our own stories are to us and then to others. You know, telling, so, you know, once I'd interviewed a few people or just spoken to a few people and they'd been able to tell for True Crime South Africa and been able to, they told their story in sort of a, you know, from A to B, I had so many of them coming back to me and saying to me, it's the first time I've actually told my story like that. 
Mm. And I've remembered things, positive and difficult things, mm. but and I've I've gained a perspective that I didn't have before. You know, and then the flip side of that was, was I was having people contacting me and saying, you know, just listening to that person tell their story helped me in, you know, X, Y, and Z ways. Mm. So, and it wasn't just crime stories, you know, people would reach out to me and say to me, you know, I know this isn't really crime related, but I wanted to share with this with you. You know, and there was, you know, people surviving cult situations or abuse situations. Mm, sure. And I just thought, you know, it was almost wasted because these these stories didn't fit into True Crime South Africa, but I really felt they needed to be told. And there's so many survivors out there of all types of things that deserve a platform. And I've had so many of them tell me, well, the media is not interested in my story because it's not uh, happening now and it's not shocking enough or it's not, you know, whatever enough, sensationalist enough. And I guess I hope that that would firstly provide a a platform for that. But I will admit that it was also, for me, it was a way to have something to do that was almost a a place to go when true crime South Africa got really hard, you know. So it was, without fail, every single time I did off an interview was one of those survivors on I Live Through This, I feel inspired, I feel grateful, I feel like, you know, geez, what the heck am I doing with my mm. life? These people are doing this with their lives, yes, you know. Yes, yes, yes. It, it, was, it was a bit selfish as well, but I, I also saw it from the perspective of the listeners of True Crime South Africa probably need that as well. Yes. And, you know, and there's, I know there's probably an even bigger audience out there which after launching the podcast, I can see that can't listen to true crime on a regular basis for whatever reason. And the I live through the stories where it you you know they're gonna you, you're gonna get a happy ending um is something that they can listen to. Yes. You know, absolutely. so I think that's really some of the things that drew me to to developing it. Amazing. And, and has it been successful? I mean, they're both your babies. Mm. And I mean, do, do you, I mean, obviously true crime South Africa is, is probably going to always top it. That's just the morbid nature of the, of humans. But I mean, <laughs> have they both done equally well? Or I mean, do you, do you see, or do you all, I mean, tell us about the, you know, how, how do you compare the two? Are they listened to equally or? Yeah. Oh, great. So, interestingly, so I must, Say that I, when the book, when everything happened with the book last year, I had to put I Live Through This on the on the back burner. So I haven't released episodes for a good couple of months. Okay. Um, but I am, I mean, I do have interviews in the bag and I'm starting to, to release those again soon. But um, interestingly, and it's difficult to compare because I already had the platform when I launched I Live Through This. Whereas True Crime South Africa was starting from literally no one knowing mm. who the heck I was. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? um, but I lived through this, actually started shooting up the charts within sort of the first two weeks of releasing the episode. Oh, wow. So okay. it, did, it had a really phenomenal, um, you know, people mm. were reaching out immediately. And still now, I mean, because I haven't released in a few months, People are regularly asking me, when are you releasing again? I hope you haven't, you know, stopped with this podcast. 
So, yeah, there's definitely an appetite for that sort of thing out there and lots and lots of survivors that, you know, I'd love to tell their stories. Well, I've, I've got, I've definitely got a, um, a, a lady for you who um, I've worked with, Malika Oringo, who's a survivor of human trafficking. And my goodness, yeah. she has the most compelling story. She actually, she speaks of the United Nations now. She's a global figure. I'm going to put you in touch with her because, you know, January oh, has actually been, you know, uh, that's been they've been highlighting human trafficking as such a scourge and it really is specifically in Africa so many people are trafficked out of Africa young girls and vulnerable girls you know people posing as Red Cross volunteers promising the world and and her story is my goodness one of survivorship and mentorship and hope um, I'm going to put you in touch because it is when I listened to her story, um, she did a documentary and I, I was privileged enough to be you know, with her because I had met her and, and we'd done this together. There was not a dry eye in that room. It was just you cannot believe how people survive and what goes on. So, you know, you, you, you're doing a great, as you say, you know, you're providing a platform, first of all, for us to open our eyes as to what these crimes are. And through listening to the survivor, you know, it's real. It's very sobering that this happens. Yeah, Yeah, I'm giving you lots of lot of content, Nicole. I can't wait for this year. Love (laughs) it. (laughs) So I mean, you know, we we spoke about how dark human human beings can be, and and um, you know, we've spoken about um, hope and 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 what have you. But I, I see. I mean, just on a completely personal nature, you've got this amazing beagle that you always talk about, and and I'm sure you look at your dog and just go, oh, thank goodness for you. When you look at all, you know, hear about the human stories. I mean, tell us something we don't yeah. know about you, your dog. Um, something you're willing to share with your audience. So you know, your superpower we don't know about other than your voice. <laughs> oh, shame. <laughs> yeah. So I mean. Uh, Chun Li is uh, my my eleven year old beagle. He is blind. Oh. He he really is quite an actually an inspiration to me. Um, and he he reminds me every single day how humans can learn so much from dogs. Yes, because you know. So in twenty twenty one, I lost my Labrador and my Basset Hound oh. uh, within a month of each other. They both both passed away. I'm sorry. And, um, and Chan Lee was obviously very attached to his pack and he lost his whole, you know, mm. most of his pack in, in such a short space of time. And then within a month after that, we realized that he was blind. Mm. Um, so we think what had been happening was, uh, our other two dogs, he'd been losing his sight over time because we, we figured out both his retinas were detached. And um, it looked like he'd been losing his sight over time, but the other dogs had actually been guiding him. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's quite phenomenal it's to such an extent that we hadn't realized he was blind. My goodness. Um, or that he was losing his sight. Yes, and yes. then when they were gone, he didn't have anyone to, to guide him. And that's when we actually realized um, you know, and I felt terrible about it in the beginning. And the vet said to me, it's, it's not that uncommon. Wow. You know, animals will, you know, obviously in the wild, it's a bit different because his, um, you know, and I will admit that our Labrador was a lot more, you know, she was quite aggressive to him. So I think she saw a different, uh, had a different take on the blindness, more of that, you know, the sort of wild weakness take on it. But yeah, they, I mean, 
that that was just amazing. And then watching him adapt, you know, he so he's had his lost his sight now for just over a year, and the speed at which this little guy has adapted to not having any sight after having been able to see, you know, almost his entire life. It's just phenomenal and, you know, just moved to a new house and he adapted super quick to that as well. That, the, you know, maybe something that, that listeners don't know that I'm sort of dealing with on a daily basis as a disabled, <laughs> disabled animal. Um, but just how amazing, uh, you know, it is, you know, if a human being loses their sight and they've been able to see their entire lives, we'll probably go crawl into bed and just, you know, want our mm. lives to be over. Mm. We'll eventually get over it and move on, but it'll take a far longer time, you know, and, and that's why just those things that we can take from animals that they just like, you know, oh, well, I, you know, this is what, what's been dealt to me and I've got to move on, you know. So maybe in a way old Chunli is sort of a, <laughs> a mascot for I live through this because yes. he's like, Absolutely. The ultimate I love through this guy. Well, maybe he should be on the on the cover page. <laughs> yeah. But it is maybe. It's, it's um it, it, there's also that you know I often talk about your tribe, you know, how you how you need to lean on your tribe more. I think we've become, you know, super independent and you know, the world's tough out there and and we forget that from our roots that you know, there's we need to through hard times and a lot of your podcasts are about hard times. Um, you know, how we need to just lean on our tribe more people, you know, human we need yeah. to become more human. I think we disconnect yeah. too often. Um, yeah. and that, that really is a story of true connection. So, so, and your superpower, your hidden talent, what is yours? Something we don't know about. Oh, you. goodness. <laughs> I don't know, actually. I mean, if you'd asked me this question, you know, four years ago, I would have said, oh, ah. I'm a writer and I, you know, but everyone knows that now. So you've revealed your superpower. <laughs> I think I've revealed. <laughs> But, you know, my, the last three years have sort of revealed all my, my superpowers. I think I'm quite a sort of structured and organized person, um, you know, and I think that sometimes something that uh, people do tend to be surprised by is people expect creative, people who work in the creative arts to be quite ditzy and you know airy fairy and all of that and I'm very much a I'm a terrible control freak <laughs> and um, you know very love to be organized I'm not always organized but love to be organized um, and very good at you know just getting things done um, I think that's and I think that's probably shown in I've had no choice in doing that, and but do but to do that in the last three years, um, you know, and that's probably been one of the reasons that True Crime South Africa has been consistent and and all of that. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. that's I think that's probably the one that I think sure. of off the top of my head. Well, it's, it certainly comes through. And one, you know, as I, I've always said, you know, your voice definitely sounds like you're controlling the narrative, <laughs> which you do so well. And I mean, obviously, you know, I'm passionate about DNA. And, and we spoke about that case um, of Connor where, where the DNA evidence was bungled up. And I mean, same in my father's case. Um, but tell us a story, if you can, or is there a crime story where DNA was used effectively um, in, in any of the podcasts that you've, You've, mm. that you've aired um 
I think one that really stands out for me and was the case of Anisha and Joey Fanukak. So mm-hmm. they were, I don't don't remember the, the offender's name off the top of my head, um, but they were murdered in basically a, you know, this guy was renting their, uh, renting a property from them and he wanted to buy the property and they didn't want to sell it. And he ended up um, killing them in the most vicious or, or rather arranging for them to be killed and was there when they were killed. And I think the reason that mm. DNA was so important there was because firstly, he'd broken down their bodies to such an extent through dismemberments and burning that if it weren't for DNA, they would probably still just be mis- listed as missing people. Um, but their families actually got mm. closure from that. And then the second part of that yes. was revealing that this offender was actually a serial offender. So on his property, they okay. found remains of at least five other people um, that he'd, it seems he'd had killed or killed himself for various reasons over the years. And, um, you know, DNA was able to say that those were five distinct people and I think two or three of them Mm. were identified and the the family members were advised. So that's certainly one that stands out Mm. for me. Um, He ended up suiciding in prison. His wife and a few others were found guilty, but I think that one definitely stands out for me. And of course, any serial, Mm. you know, Mm. I think you told me about Z. Um, which I still want to cover on the podcast. Yes, that the key. Um, mm. That mm. The, mm. I've done a little bit of reading after you sent me the judgments, and that one really stood out for me as well because I mean he would have just been released back onto the streets after he'd served his short little stint mm. for his petty mm. crime if it weren't for DNA. Absolutely. Um, I'm also, you know, we're dealing with, we call it DNA hit of the year at the moment. I'm actually going to be in Johannesburg soon interviewing the mum of the victim and, and the death investigator. And in South Africa, interestingly, after 30 days, you, you are required by law to um, perform a pauper's burial with unidentified human remains. And this particular death investigator did not believe that this person was unidentified. He just felt that she had a family. She was a young 21-year-old um, woman who they found. And um, he just kept finding reasons not to bury her, not to bury her. And then he said to um, the police officer, he said, because they don't routinely take DNA from, from, from bodies. And he said, come and take a crime scene sample from this victim. She's been raped. And it was through that they put that DNA on the, the database and it was a crime scene sample. Um, and the mother kept unbeknownst that this person was lying in this um, morgue um, because she lived in another province, just kept pushing and saying, you know, I know my child, there's something, something, something. And nine months later, he still managed to not bury this poor child who had been murdered. Um, this guy was arrested and his, his, his profile was put on the database and it hit to this crime scene sample. So not only did they connect him to the murder, but the mother was able to go and identify her child and this amazing death investigator. I actually just, I, got, I get goosebumps. Um, yes. And he said, you know, he, she came in and it was her daughter. And, you know, you talk about closure. I mean, it's, it's closure is a difficult word, but she, you know, the, the, yeah. the knowing that that is her daughter um, and the fact that this guy was convicted. 
So yeah, that's that's uh, sort of a more recent case, and I just think, oh my, God. if it hadn't been for the TNA, she would have been buried. He would have carried on, no doubt, and there would have been no, yeah. literally, um, you know, closure, well, conviction, nothing, and they would have had to bury her, and she would have been none the wiser. You know, I can tell you, I can show you a family who is the other side of of what would have happened, because you know, the Desiree Reed who went missing in, she went missing now probably 21 years, uh, no, longer than that, 2000, so 20, almost 23 years ago. And, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of, of connecting with her sister and her niece and nephew who've never even known her, um, but know of her, of course. And same sort of conversation I've had with, with Janet about her sister is that there's a very good chance that she's passed away. And there's a very good chance she passed away very soon after she went missing. But mm. that family will likely never know because there's a very good chance that that DNA was mm. never taken from. Um, you know, so yeah. that's the other yes. side of, of what yeah. ha happens on a daily basis. And this family has lived with this for 23 years. My goodness. Well, we, we hope that through our laws that this is going to change, that every every unidentified human, you know, all, all unidentified human remains, DNA is taken. So I'm glad DNA saved the day in my case. I'm no, sorry about no, your case. No. And, um, you know, you know, South Africa sadly has such a plethora of crime stories. And I mean, it's good for business for you and, and people listen to it. I mean, it's also very sad. What do you think drives crime in South Africa? I mean, just from a purely, you know, personal perspective, what is it that, mm. why do we have such a high crime rate in South Africa in your view? Yeah. If I may course. ask. Um, I think it's a lot of elements. Um, you know, people don't like to believe it, but it is very much historic. Um, you know, it goes back to where a large portion of our population are in socioeconomic terms today because of, apartheid and the disparities of the past that's certainly part of it mm. um that can't be denied the you know the other side of it is of course gangsterism which many people don't know but has also been was also deeply supported by you know or created and empowered by apartheid you know albeit unknowingly um, you know, a lot of the gangs formed because people in so-called coloured areas needed something to band together around, and that's turned into a lot of the gangsterism we see today. You know, but I, so I think it's very much socioeconomic. You know, it goes back into our past, but sadly, it's a cycle, and we know that. You know, psychologically, when children grow up, and even adults, when we live in a society that is so violent and we are you know exposed to this stuff every single day we do become um you know desensitized to it and when that desensitization mm. pairs up with perhaps a difficult childhood um you know other existing psychological problems uh it's, it's going to repeat that pattern you know, so it, it's almost become, I think, sadly, a bit of a vicious cycle in our country. The more crime we experience, the mm, more desensitized mm. we become. And then add in all of those other socioeconomic, et cetera, you know, corruption, which allows it to continue. Um, it's become almost a bit of a vicious cycle 
that you know needs someone to put their foot in it and stop the cycle um you know but mm. yeah i think that is really what it is yeah i mean i've always said that you know the minority of 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 people in South Africa are criminals. The majority mm. are good people. And, you know, I, I always like to end up on a positive note, which we're going to do. And that's the majority, which is all of us listening. We hope, um, you know, we, we need to take back the power and, and we need to turn this on its head because it, it just, it's, there's too much power that the minority hold over the majority um, in terms of this crime. And hopefully through our voices and through our platforms, you know, we can bring hope and we can inspire people to take a stand. Um, and yes, um, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. What, what next, Nicole? Give us a little teaser. I mean, you, you, you organized, you're busy, you, you know, you've, you've written a book, two podcasts. Um, are you going out of South Africa into other parts of Africa, much like I've done? What's next for you? Let's, let's have a teaser. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been really, um, yeah, I'm pairing up with a couple of, of really sort of, big names this year I'm going to be doing some work with Spotify um you know they're talking about the rest of Africa um you know they're hoping to grow podcasting in South Africa in, in Africa on the African continent and I hope to help them with that um so that's one partnership I'm excited about amazing well uh definitely yeah yeah that's it's it's really really exciting you know because uh, you know, ending off on that positive note, I think that one of the ways that we put our our hand into the cycle and we stop it is by uh, raising our voices. And for such a long time, the African continent has had our stories told for us. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think podcasting is such a fabulous way that we can start to take back our stories. Um, you know, so yes. I really want to be a part of that. Um Hopefully, I don't think I'll be publishing another book this year. I may. You never know what happens. Um, what happens, but definitely working on another one that we've got coming up. Wow! And you know, just hoping to cement the work that True Crime South Africa is doing. Um, do more unsolved cases. Um, you know, really get back to the roots of why I started the podcast. Um, you know, all the the public stuff is lovely, and I I love you know would love to do more of that, but don't want to ever lose focus on you know why I started this and the truly important stuff well that's amazing and I think you've you've raised a very good point I had a I had a meeting the other day with the he was actually the president of um the African Society of Forensic Medicine um they've actually got an amazing forensic pathology event in Kigali coming up Nicole I think you should come with me oh awesome. um <laughs> uh, yeah I was, I just up your alley um and and one thing you said um which we both agreed when you speak of Africa make sure Africa's in the room and it's it's precisely what you've just said is that we need to take back our our voices, our stories, um, our power. Mm. And um, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, I can certainly hear that's exactly what you're going to do. So before we sign off, please tell everyone where they can hear your podcast, where they can get your book so that they are not left hanging. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Uh, podcasts available, both True Crime South Africa and I Live Through This, available on Spotify and all other podcast platforms also on the true crime south africa website and then the book is available in hard copy on any in any bookstore exclusive books etc also online in ebook version 
uh, on Amazon, and then the audiobook is on Audible, and that is narrated by me as well. Amazing. And this has been such fun turning the mic on you, it's I have amazing. to say. I hope I've done it justice because you, you really are the you've you are the crime queen of South Africa. <laughs> um and it's just been wonderful to, you know, to, to to just dive deeper into your stories, continue to do the incredible work that you do. You. We will always be tuning in to to your podcasts, reading your books, and um certainly feeding you some cases and awesome. um, some interesting stuff is coming your way. Um, I'm Vanessa Lynch from DNA for Africa. I've been chatting to Nicole Engelbrecht from True Crime South Africa. And thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with Vanessa and I hope you all did too. Don't forget to follow DNA for Africa on their socials to keep up with and support their amazing work and go to their website for a ton of truly useful information on DNA as a crime fighting tool. Thank you once again to DNA for Africa and Vanessa Lynch for initiating this and sponsoring this bonus episode.